If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Hope all is well in your world. Life is mooching along and things are going fairly rosily. <laughs> fairly <laughs> rosily. Yeah, you can't be more than optimistic <laughs> than the fairly rosily. John, so I want to talk about this big issue today, right? Yeah. Security, cooperation, the decoupling of America and China, which was basically the globalization story, how it's all going to change. And there's one guy who I know is on top of this. Yes. Noah Smith in California, an amazing thinker, extraordinary guy started as a physicist. He's prolific in the stuff that he churns out. Unbelievable. He's Substack, by the way. Read Noah Smith's Substack. It is outrageous Mm. in terms of its consistent quality. You know, easy enough to do one thing right, get a thing right, but he does it all the time. So And lots of it. Lots of it. So let's go talk about big picture, geopolitics, economics, all the good stuff, plus technology. Let's go to California and talk to Noah. Noah, good evening to you. It's morning for us. It's evening in California. How are you? Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's uh, it's midnight for me here. This is what I do on a Friday night as I do podcasts. <laughs> I know. Stay up late and wait for a call from Ireland. Noah, let's talk about you wrote a couple of months ago, and it's very, very opposite, and it's very timely a piece about what you think is happening in the world, the decoupling between China and the United States. This is where I want to start. Give me the sense of what was happening in the last 20 years and how that's actually changed in the last couple of years. Right. Well, so before around 2000, you know, in the in the latter decades of the 20th century, globalization was mostly rich countries selling complex products to each other. Japanese people sold cars to America. America sold, you know, aircraft to Japan, et cetera, et cetera. And then poorer countries would do the cheap labor. They'd slap stuff together. They'd make some shoes and we'd worry about them working hard in the sweatshops. And that was basically what it was. And then something changed, which is China joined the global trading system and joined the WTO. And and in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, China had been just one of these poor countries making the simple labor-intensive things, toys and furniture and blah, blah, blah. And then in the 2000s, they really changed. They they started subsidizing these, these capital-intensive industries, climbing up the tech value chain very fast. And interestingly, they did not do this using industrial policy. 
uh, at the national level. They did this by telling all the people in the provincial levels, you can do whatever you want, just get growth. And so the people in the provincial levels, you know, the lower level government people kicked everybody off their land and did whatever they could to solicit multinational investment. And they just grew like gangbusters because they had all these desperately poor people who wanted to work very hard because they remembered how much things sucked in the Cultural Revolution and they wanted to get rich. And so that's the short version. China was so huge that the disruption to the trading system was unlike anything we'd ever known before. People had argued about trade with Japan or with Germany or with France or what? No, that was just absolutely nothing compared to what happened with China. Developed countries just partially deindustrialized. You know, their manufacturing output stopped growing, except for maybe Germany. People lost a ton of factory jobs. Developed companies were forced to automate to stay, you know, to keep their high value manufacturing. And then they lost all the low value manufacturing and things to China. And it all went to China. We know this story. This is an old story. But what people don't know is the other side of this, which is in global trade, there's something called the smile curve, which says that there's a value chain in supply chains. In supply chains, you get the most value, you get the most money from doing one of two things. Either you do the early stuff, the design and the high-end component manufacturing, like making fancy chips and screens and stuff for electronics, or you do the marketing and branding and support and sales and all that stuff at the end of it. Um, and, which is, which is the, just for an Irish audience, precisely what we kind of do. We, you know, you've got, you've got all your Googles, your Facebooks, or all those people here and their branding, sales, advertising side of the game. Um, and it's interesting you talk about supply chains because for an Irish audience, supply chains are essential because what we've managed to do, and I think maybe through industrial policy, a bit of luck, a bit of charm, a bit of being in the right place at the right time, all that good stuff is that the country has managed to get considerably richer by inserting itself into this supply chain at some stage. But what you're saying is China did this in a massive, massive scale. Massive scale. That's right. I mean, yeah, like Ireland is a, is a very small country. China is no longer the biggest country now. It just got passed by India, but it was the biggest country at that time. So China, yeah, basically upset the whole global trading system, but they weren't making a lot of profit on it. They were sort of we talk about the middle income trap, but this is really the middle supply chain trap where you do the very low margin stuff like, you know, assembling iPhones at a, at a Foxconn factory or processing nickel and lithium in a giant capital intensive chemical plant that doesn't make you a lot of profit. So China was doing all these things that required mass mobilization of resources, massive scale because you could mobilize resources on such a vast scale, but it wasn't getting return on equity and it wasn't getting high value added. And it was getting rich very fast during the 2000s. But then in the 2010s, things slowed down considerably. And people don't really realize that, but China was growing at 12% in the 2000s. And over the course of the 2010s, this slowed from 12% to 6%. Yeah, which is and huge. So that was a, which is huge. Which is huge. That's a big slowdown. So, I mean, you know, partly it's because, you know, there's a lot of factors you just can't keep going. They moved all the people, all the surplus workers from the farms to the cities. They, you know, gave them all jobs. They uh, they basically exhausted a lot of their, their, you know, resource and land stuff that they could do. They built all the housing they could build. They did all these things, right? They saturated foreign markets with their exports. And so they reached the end of sort of this natural limit. They stole all the stuff they could steal. And boy, did they steal a lot. 
but you know, I don't, I don't necessarily fault them for stealing IP because you know, yes, stealing IP, we lose money, but you know, ideas spread. I do spread then, exactly, uh, and you can't, and you can't stop the spread of ideas. And the whole, the whole game well, of innovation can. is, you know, you tinker around, you borrow a bit, you, you mess about, you come up with something better. It's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a workshop issue that if you're, if you're in the IP game, somebody's always going to rob a little bit and tailor it, right. and, and, and yeah, you can slap patents on them, but. But Noah, the United States loses, you mentioned there, rich countries lost lots of middle skill jobs as a result of this, and lower skill jobs as a result, of, particularly middle skill industrial. And eventually that kicks in and becomes political. And I presume that's right. what happened in the States. Oh, yeah, definitely. And in other countries too, but especially in the US, because we had fewer worker protections, fewer protections for the people who got laid off. And, and so the anti-China thing comes through in about, what, nine, maybe 2012, 2013? It's, it just slowly builds. And then, of course, you get Trump, who said, we never win anymore. We've got to beat China. And, you know, Trump really thought about this in terms of a very, very 1920s, 30s sort of way of thinking about it, because that's how Trump thinks about everything. And so he thought of it in terms of tariffs, our products versus their products, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that was... Not generally the smartest way of thinking about it, but the national security services were working on a parallel track and they thought, okay, China is now becoming a strategic threat. They were an economic threat, but now they're a strategic threat because they're getting the ability to challenge us militarily because they're getting technology that can challenge our military. And so the security services pushed the Trump administration to do a whole lot of protectionist measures that were not really aimed at protecting U.S. industry. They were aimed at restricting China's access to advanced technology. These are things like investment controls under CFIUS. These were things like export controls against Huawei. These were, you know, various things like that. Export controls are extremely important, and I, I, I can talk a lot about them. But anyway, that's where the, there were two trade wars. There was the tariffs, which were this flashy thing that everybody talked about. And then there was this quieter high-tech trade war that almost nobody was talking about. And that was in the 2010s. And so what you're saying is that, interestingly, what most of the world believes, or at least has been led to believe, is that this is Trump saying to the, you know, the, the, the workers in Pennsylvania or the workers in Michigan, look, you know, you have been displaced because of China. I'm going to be your mate. And it's, it was very political and it was very on the hustings. And it was very, very much a slogan. But what you're saying is in the background, the American military the American intelligence was saying, hold on a second, we are now being threatened. So it was a confluence of populist politics plus a real threat to the American, to American security that actually drove this change. Right. And so for better or worse, America is not very motivated by the need to preserve prestige industries or preserve manufacturing jobs. We just don't care about that, honestly. And maybe we should care about it, you know, but we don't. Uh, what we do care about is national security. That's what drives us to do everything. And it, you can understand America if you understand. Uh, Paul Krugman called us an army with an insurance company, and I think that, <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And Paul Paul Krugman. Every everybody likes to try to take a run at Paul Krugman, and then he almost always wins. He's the best. You know, he's he's the, the end best. of the story. Like he's he's the best writer. He writes more fluidly than everyone. He does this. He's been doing it for thirty years. He's the best thinker, and he's got these little pithy expressions that just. Explain what's right. going on. I like to think my jokes are better than his, but, you know, he's... Yeah. <laughs> well, in actual fact, Paul was at Kilconomics. You're coming to Kilconomics this year. We'll have the same thing mm. in the cathedral, and we'll see 
God will decide whose jokes are best. We'll be in the cathedral, but he was great. He was great. Paul was in the cathedral. He said, I've never been in a place like this before on the altar. And I said, okay. He said, I'm I'm slightly out of my my depth here. He said, could I possibly give a lecture from, (laughs) I said, the podium, up around the Cardinal's podium? And he said, yeah. I said, off you go. He loved it. He loved it. I, I come prepared with a large number of Jewish and Catholic jokes. Perfect. Well, you, so. <laughs> it'd be great. It'd be great. Okay, you, <laughs> you you drop the rabbi jokes. I'll drop the bishop jokes, and we'll be fine. <laughs> where were we? Where were we? We're- so we had this deal with China where they gave us cheap stuff, and we didn't. When we looked the other way about the fact that our manufacturing jobs were being destroyed because our high tech people and our finance people were making money hand over fist, they were getting really rich, and you know, America is a we're not necessarily a plutocracy. We we end up like that anyway. We're a de facto plutocracy. The the plutocrats in America aren't actually very able to control the government, but America just doesn't care about the working class, period, and really never has, to be honest, except for maybe like 20 years after, during and after World War II. And then we yeah. stopped. But then otherwise, we never Something really that have. Something Europeans it's, can't it's, get it's, at all, as you know. That's the sort of, it's like a division in a family wedding where you have one side of the family who really doesn't care about what the other side of the family obsesses about. And that's something that I think when Europeans talk to Americans about politics, what we can't understand is where is the blue-collar vote? Where is the left-wing concern? Where is the protectionist? And the Yanks are saying, look, just get over it. Yeah, or, or just being confused. I mean, there are certainly people who want us to have that sort of consciousness. There's the Economic Policy Institute, those guys, and, you know, some unions and I wish we did. I wish we had more of a blue collar consciousness, but you know, we've been trying to build this blue collar consciousness in America for 200 years. And it's just, it's not, you know, it's, uh, it, it has not gone especially successfully yeah. anyway. So <laughs> and the we were willing to make this, this bargain with China. Every time it's just on the American, every time somebody comes up with a blue collar idea, people always default to, well, the founding fathers said such and such. And suddenly, suddenly all your good marks, marks, Jesus Christ, all these good thinkers are at the door and you're back to these five or six geezers from 1775, and suddenly, that's it, argument over. Anyway, let's let's go back <laughs> China, America. So where are we around 19, 2018, 2018, 2019? 2018, 2019, so the deal was off. Now, now, I should say that China started breaking the deal first, actually, because China's leaders did not want to be stuck in the middle of the supply chain. So Xi Jinping implemented a policy to onshore the components of the supply chain. So basically, instead of taking other people's screens and chips and slapping them in together to an iPhone, as we did in the days of Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping said, okay, instead, we're going to make the screens, we're going to make the chips, and created a national industrial policy for China, which had really never existed since the days of Mao. Xi Jinping created it, and it eventually morphed into and, and blossomed into the Made in China 2025 initiative, which said, okay, now we're going to make the high value stuff too. And, you know, America said, <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and thus was the high tech trade war born. But note that it wasn't just America who broke the deal. China broke the deal first. America still wanted to have this deal in the early and mid 2010s. But by 2015, China under Xi Jinping, you know, we had Obama in, in office then, China was actively trying to compete, rise up the value chain, et cetera, et cetera. And instead of just stealing tech, 
they started stealing tech and standing up domestic competitors and kicking out. The, so the Siemens is the famous example here, right? So Siemens builds China some trains. China steals all their IP, stands up their own company, drives them out of the, the Chinese market, and then starts building trains in Germany with Siemens stolen technology, driving Siemens out of business in Germany. Yeah, <laughs> And of course, the Germans are like, oh, I guess that's bad. Like, the, you know, people talk about high trust and low trust societies. I do not trust any index of social trust that does not have Germany at the top because they believed (laughs) that Bank of America's housing bonds were good and AAA rated. And they believed that Putin was a reliable supplier of oil and a nice guy. And they believed that China would like do business fairly with their high tech companies. It's like, oh, my God, guys, Germany, stop, stop trusting people. Yeah, no, it's it is very true. Every single, and mark my words, every single commercial or residential property boom bust cycle, Deutsche Bank is left holding the shit. And you will see that again. And I think it's because they've generated so much profit from their industry since the Second World War that they're actually very good at making stuff at a profit and banking the profit. But if they put the profit into these banks... And the banks are just useless. So no country has ever wasted more money than Germany. They do it all the time. The banks and the politicians and the do politicians. not know what the hell they're doing. Anyway, let us move on. Leave the Germans alone, right? So <laughs> Sorry, Germans. where are we right? Where are we right now between China and America? So the most important industry when we're talking about military is semiconductors for one very simple reason, which is that if you want to deliver death directly to wherever your opponent is, You need computer systems to do that. And this became very apparent in the Gulf War of 1991 uh, when precision munitions first showed their stuff on the battlefield and just basically destroyed everything in their path easily. And that's why Saddam Hussein couldn't really put up a fight in that war, despite his massive arsenal of Soviet weapons. And so then the Soviet Union realized that their army was not going to be able to beat ours as they had thought it would. And then that precipitated their collapse, probably. Uh, You can read all this in the book Chip War. Mm -hmm. And China said, oh, my God, we need precision weapons. We need, you know, blah, blah, blah. Precision weapons, precision basically is important because of the inverse square law. Explain that to me now. Explain that to me. Uh, So if you are familiar with physics, you'll know that power dissipates as the inverse of the square of the radius the distance. Explain right? that in English. If I'm 10 meters from a, a blast versus 100 meters from a blast, how much less of a blast do I get? Okay. So basically, the closer you are, the more deadly it is by far. And so you can fire, you know, 100 projectiles versus firing just one projectile. You know, if you have a projectile that's 10 times more accurate, you can fire one 100th the number of projectiles to get the same effect. Sure, this is the and, uh, this is the physics equivalent of the the great Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until they get a punch in the face, and it's the face that actually really hurts. Exactly, you've got to punch the face, <laughs> so you've got to you got to hit accurately. <laughs> okay, so precision is is absolutely essential, and this is where the chips fall. Right, and ex- exactly this is where the chips fall. Um, so then. <laughs> Uh, also, in the age of AI, this is even more true because AI can, you know, take you unerringly to your target as long as you have good chips to to direct your AI. 
And so China was stealing all our chip technology and they're coming for chip supremacy by stealing, by innovating, by competing, by driving down costs, by doing their regular shit, their regular, you know, bag of, of dirty tricks combined with hard work, hard work plus dirty tricks. That's their, that's their formula. They work insanely hard and pull every dirty trick in the book. And so they do this to each other. This is just Chinese business culture, right? And so then they were, they were doing this and America said, no, no, this is not going to happen. So we did export controls and export controls mean that American companies, if you're on the entity list, that is, if you're one of the Chinese companies that we put on our, on our list, right, then we can't sell you chips. We can't sell things to people who sell you chips. We can't sell you equipment to make chips. We can't sell you the software to make chips. We can't sell any of those things to anyone else who helps you make chips. Basically, if we have anything to say about it, you will not make chips. And it's like, you're done. Stop making chips, you know, go open like a, you know, kebab stand or something yeah. because you're out of the <laughs> yeah, chip yeah, business. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or outside a nightclub, yes. a hot dog place late at night. Yeah, okay. That's that's what the Americans right. have said to the Chinese. Okay. What's that? What's like street food in Ireland? What do, what do people oh, chips. eat? Chips. You know, <laughs> Wait, that's what we call, that's what we call French fries, right? Yes. We call them, yeah. yeah. I'm excited for my first trip to Ireland. Now, I want to get to the serious part of this podcast, which is All right. right now, we have a proper decoupling between what you would call the American-led West, Europe, America together, and China with its soft support for Russia, that gang. But how does this all play out? Because our first world, the last 20 years, we had globalization, we had Chimerica, it was all going a certain way. Small countries like Ireland always love globalization because globalization allows little guys to pretend they're big guys, which is always the great thing. For the first time in our history, the tyranny of geography and the tyranny of size didn't destroy us, which was basically what all small countries worry about, which is the big guys will just flex their muscles. Globalization gives small countries an ability to do their thing. Now what you're saying is maybe we're in a different phase. Yes. And so, although I wouldn't say that what you're describing is, is gone, because I think globalization is still going to happen, but it's going to be a segmented globalization. So I think that instead of, you know, everybody just does all the manufacturing in China, it's going to be more countries, like countries will do manufacturing within the democratic bloc. But then some things will still be outsourced to China. So the thing is that this isn't going to be a complete separation. There will still be a lot of investment in China. Like anything non-strategic will still be done there. So for example, electric cars. I don't think anyone has decided yet that electric cars are a strategic asset because you don't drive an electric car into the battlefield. The minute the Ukrainians figure out how to take an electric scooter to deliver anti-tank missiles, at that point, electric cars will become a point of economic contention overnight. And so if the Ukrainians, yeah, if the Ukrainians figure that out, you know, if they if they take like a lime scooter and they're shooting javelins at Russian tanks from a lime scooter, <laughs> then we'll say, well, we need all the lime scooters here. It's, so it all depends on what they can come up with because the Russians aren't coming up with anything new, but the Ukrainians constantly are. And so that's where we are. And I think there's going to be, at first, it's going to be very, very difficult to do this friendshoring thing that people are talking about because already you can see tensions. You see the United States saying, okay, we're going to build stuff in the United States. We're going to build stuff in America. And then France gets mad and South Korea gets mad, right? We are going to have to choose between the whole Trumpist you know, America first thing and cultivating our allies. And in the end, we'll choose cultivating our allies. And so that means that we, 
in the Cold War, we viewed the Japanese semiconductor industry as a win for us, even though it took business away from American companies because it kept the chip industry within the Western bloc. And we were happy that Japan, even though, you know, protectionists complained, but we were happy that Japan and Germany developed such competitive car industries because that meant that they could build military vehicles if it came to a war with the communist bloc, right? So we were accepted that and encouraged that. South Korea, Taiwan, uh, all these other countries, uh, we encouraged their industrialization during the Cold War because even if it meant that our companies would lose some profit to them, get outcompeted by them occasionally, because it served the greater good of our block. And I think that eventually we'll come around to a realization like that here. We will encourage Apple to move its factories to India and Vietnam, both of which are menaced by China, both of which are highly suspicious of China, and we'll call that a win. You know, we'll support places like East Europe and Southeast Asia because they're, you know, on our side. But that will take a lot of relearning of those you know, we'll have to, to get flex those muscles that we let atrophy since the Cold War of multilateralism, of building a block and building a gang instead of going it alone. Because in the 1990s, we felt like we were powerful enough to do everything alone on our own. Maybe we were, but then by the 2010s, that was no longer true. And so then we had Trump saying, let's go it alone because he's wrapped up in his little 1920s fantasies, which is just stupid. And, um, and so now we're out of that fantasy land, but we we still haven't relearned the multilateralism we need. But when we do, it's going to be big and important, and we're still going to have lots of globalization. It's just going to be at the higher levels of tech. There will be massive, massive pressure to decouple, you know, so that nothing in the chip supply chain, the semiconductor supply chain is made in China, nothing in the aerospace supply chain is made in China. We'll try to decouple robotics, too. And... I think robotics probably, there was a big sort of uh, fracas with Germany's KUKA robotics. China bought that and was basically just going to strip the IP and like destroy the company. And then Germany finally, finally realized something bad was going on. Oh no. <laughs> and then like. <laughs> that, tell me, finally, before we go, where does Europe, our benighted part of the world, stand to this? Because this sounds to me like a, a massive win for Europe, what you're talking about. Well, it could be. It's it's complicated because Europe European companies were making lots of money by shipping their manufacturing to China. Yeah, particularly German companies. Particularly German companies. And frankly, one reason they were doing it is because Europe is overregulated. And so they couldn't do stuff in Europe, so instead they did it in China and just raked in the profits at the expense of European workers because Europe was overregulated as to what they could do in Europe. Those regulations are going to have to be rationalized for the purpose of reshoring industry to Europe. And I hope that the Germans are thinking about this. I hope that the French are thinking about this. And, you know, the French, I feel like they'd always just sort of like yell at people to like wave a magic wand and make things different so that like French people can just like eat ice cream 27 hours a day. But like, <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't work eat, like that. And so I, the Italians eat ice cream. The French eat foie gras 24 hours a day. The Italians eat ice enough. cream. I'm unfamiliar with the subtleties. The subtleties of the of cuisine. Cultural, <laughs> cultural differences. The is not chips 24 hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, Noah, I think I know. on the foie gras ice cream conclusion, I think we will end there. But what you're saying is the world is in for some quite massive change. Can I just ask you finally, on this chip issue, one of the biggest employers in this country 
on the tech side is Intel. And they continue to build fabs here and in Germany. Are they still big players in this game? Are they America's chosen player? Intel has really been falling behind. Intel has had management errors and they got very complacent. So what they had was they had an incredibly profitable, insanely profitable chokehold on the highest end part of the chip industry, which is making extremely high-end cutting-edge CPUs for servers. And they made a quarter of a trillion dollars in profit from that. That is a lot, a quarter trillion dollars in profit for one company. And they just sat there and just printed money all day long because they controlled the commanding heights of the chips. Just so you know, a quarter of a trillion dollars is more than the Irish GDP. Just to put that into context, Mm. the whole country, everything we make, add it all the way up. So there we go. They didn't make that in one year, but okay. They they made that over years. But just to put it in perspective, it's a lot of bread. It's big. It's a lot of bread. So then what happened was that they didn't do anything else. They just did this one thing because, you know, if you're from Generation X, right, you think that CPUs are just the, the chips that can do everything and do do everything, right? And you think that servers are where the chips run the fastest. We're taught Moore's Law is everything. Better CPUs just rule everything. And that was very true up until sometime in the 2000s, and then it stopped being true. And now you have a number of other things. So you had the rise of low power chips, which you need for cell phones because high power chips, guess what? They overheat. Yeah. And then you had AI, which is now replacing a lot of applications. AI doesn't run best on CPUs. You need purpose-built chips called GPUs. You need chips that can do a lot of parallel computations because AI is really just a giant bunch of matrix crap. And so, <laughs> you know, AI, I mean, you've, you've run regressions, right? You've done OLS. AI is like a regression the size of God. It's just like, (laughs) that's AI. And so you're doing all these things in parallel. So basically a GPU is sort of like MATLAB for AI, right? It's this thing that's optimized for these parallelized vector operations. So now companies like NVIDIA are coming to the fore and Samsung and TSMC. And so in other words, the chip industry fragmented different kinds of chips, low power chips and AI chips and all these different things became important, right? This, it wasn't just these, this one single super advanced CPU that does everything that like we had in the nineties. Right. And so instead they were all fragmented and this Taiwanese company is like, okay, well, we'll build all your stuff, right? We'll build all these different kinds of chips. Intel could only build one kind of thing. TSMC learned how to build every kind of thing. And that's why TSMC beat Intel, because they had that diversity at a time when the chip industry was fragmenting, right? And that's why they they beat everybody. Also, they just invest a shit ton of money. But TSMC uses these machines that are only built by the Dutch, right? Once again, the Dutch have have conquered Taiwan. Um, So then ASML, which is now, I think, Netherlands' largest company, yeah. The thing about the Dutch is you may well laugh at the Germans, but never write off our Dutch friends when it comes to commerce, Mm. when it comes to trade, when it comes to money, when it comes to all that business. The Dutch, in their DNA, have Mm. a trading gene that nobody in Europe has. Do not mess with the Dutch. They will win. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so anyway, the Dutch have this company, ASML, that makes these amazing machines that TSMC depends on. But guess who messes with the Dutch? us. So TSMC depends extremely, like completely on two companies, an American company that makes the world's highest powered lasers, super laser company out here in America, and the other super mirror company 
which is a Zeiss, in Germany. The Germans have come back into the discussion. They make a mirror that is the smoothest mirror on Earth by far. And both those super lasers and super mirrors are necessary components for ASML, which in turn, their machines are necessary components for TSMC, which does all the actual manufacturing. And so, as a result, America can turn off all of this at a, just on a whim. We can say, guess what? No lasers, Netherlands. ASML, you're out of lasers, you're screwed. And ASML is like, ah. And then ASML is like, sorry, TSMC, no, no machines, no fabricate, no EUV machines, you're screwed. And TSMC is like, ah, and then there's no chips. And so, and no high end, none of the high end super high chips. And so our export controls are incredibly powerful because we have the choke points upstream. So that's it. All roads lead to Washington for the first yes. time in 25 years. And that's what we're talking about. That's right. And I mean, you know, America is is a country, uh, I'm speaking to my European friends here, and Americans look like idiots to everybody else because we are. But um, we are highly effective idiots. And that's what people need to learn is that Americans are highly effective idiots. And as the Soviets... The Nazis, the Imperial Germans, the Imperial Japanese, and the British learned to their woe, America's actually highly effective idiots. And so perhaps once again, the world must learn this lesson. Noah Smith, from one <laughs> less effective idiot to a highly effective idiot. <laughs> highly, highly effective idiots, H-E-I. <laughs> if I ever make a company, that'll be our name. No, listen, great stuff. Thanks for your time. We'll see you again. Thanks for having me on, David. So the biggest idiots in the idiot factory. Absolutely. Let's talk about them in just a second after Grant. this. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course. And I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. So, 
She's speaking of idiots. Noah might not like this, but he does. Well, I think he should like it. He does look disturbingly like Jonah Hill. There's, there's, there's a bang of that off him, all right. There is, isn't there? Yeah, there is. The Wolf of and Wall he's Street. A, he's as fun, actually, as yeah, well. He is. He's, he's funny. Brilliant he's funny. crack. He's, exactly. Noah Smith, you might not know, also starred in The Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> but it was interesting what he was saying there about, and this is the, the little bit that I was kind of a little taken back by when he was talking about where does the US go from here? And he was talking about they will go with their allies yeah. rather than the make America great again or America first. Kind yes, of, yes. Which I, I find really interesting, actually. And it makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, he's saying at the expense, possibly, of US jobs. Which it's is a fascinating thing. We forget that the United States is a global superpower. Mm. So there are two or three different imperatives going on all the time in American policy. So one is domestic American politics, American welfare, American people. Then there's this other side, which is how does America remain preeminent in the world as the world's main superpower? How does it fight China? Mm. So what I've always been intrigued about after the Second World War, John, Something that really amazed me was that America treated its enemies better than its allies. Yeah. It treated yeah, yeah. Germany and Japan better than it treated Britain and France. Okay. It was constantly undermining Britain and France and Suez in all sorts of areas. It was very, very happy to actually, you know, as the kids would say, throw shade on the Brits and the French. Mm. Whereas the Germans and the Japs, it built those countries up. And now Noah has kind of explained why that was. Yeah. Precisely this because the big picture, the big chessboard that the Americans are playing a form of chess all the time. Mm. Now, we think, because we hear the likes of Trump, for example, that, you know, they're playing... The 1920s kind of vision of America, which I think is is brilliant, actually. It makes an awful lot of sense. It does make sense, but we we, we disparage the Americans things. Oh, the Americans are playing Monopoly while the rest are playing chess. But in actual fact, all the time, the Americans are playing chess. Mm. All the time, Right which is, you know, as you said, they build up South Korea, they build up Taiwan, they build up Japan. They're happy to outsource American jobs yeah. and American prestige. Yeah. But what they're doing is they're creating a network, a web of pro-American countries, societies, nodes all around the world yeah. in order to maintain their primacy as the superpower. Now, I presume the Romans did the same thing. Like if you go back to, yeah. to all those big empires and we are only seeing, this is the interesting thing, we only see half the game when we listen yeah. to American policy. The big game for the Americans is how do they remain preeminent? So for example, I'll give you a great example. The American Navy patrols most of the oil supply coming from the Middle East. Yes. Where does yeah. most of the oil supply in the Middle East go to? It goes to the Far East. It goes to Asia. So the Americans are actually paying for the protection of the energy of the mm. Asians, right? So all sorts of things are going through their heads. They, that's that's a fascinating thing. And I, I mean, that's getting into the, the dark, but also quite light places of America, which is State Department policy. But but I, I wonder about domestic politics in America, which I know is a completely different ball game. But, the but it's ri- in parallel. You're right. It's yeah, always in parallel. But, but there is the rise due to, it's not even just due to Trump, but, it, you know, it has been on the rise for the last while. And there is, unfortunately, a kind of a, a very myopic view 
of a lot of Americans and, he, and Jonah and Noah, Noah referred to as as the idiots. We're idiots, but we're powerful idiots. And you know, yeah. and they beat most people at, at the end. In the end, yeah. But is is a large part of domestic politics? Do they understand that no. bigger picture? No, no. And that's that's a danger for the American international global policy. Surely. I'm going to end, John, on a bit of Roman history. The Brothers Gracchi, okay? Oh. So the Brothers Gracchi have this revolt. What their idea was that basically you had the empire, their emperor, the senators, and the people, Yeah. right? And the Gracchi brothers decided they were going to circumvent the senate, the power base, mm. okay? And have a direct relationship between the emperor, okay, and the great unwashed, the people. Right, okay. Right? Yeah. It's called the Gracchi Revolt against the establishment. Now, of okay. course, it was put down because Roman senators didn't get to be senators by being fucking wusses. These were pretty nasty people, right? Yeah, yeah. But there has always been this extraordinary historic moments where the king tries to circumvent the senate or the political power, the third estate, as they call them in France, mm. and have a relationship with the people. But what you always, and that's what Trump was trying to do. It's yes. based on yeah, the yeah, Gracchi yeah. model, right? right? The Brothers Gracchi, okay? Now, the, I doubted he read about this. I don't thing. think he was up to speed on <laughs> the Brothers Gracchi, right? Okay? Might have been, I don't know. Anyway, uh, and that's what Noah's kind of talking about. Is there's always this, and you're talking about, mm. there's always this tripartite in power relationship between the king, in the case of America, the elected president, yeah. who is regal in his coronation. Yeah. He's yeah, the only yeah. president I know who have a coronation. Yeah. No, that they have this big thing in, in the big white. Inauguration, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like nobody else is that they have a coronation. It's like a king, yeah. right? And then you have the power base that is the Senate or the Congress, right? The Hill, as they call it, Capitol Hill. Yeah. And then you have the people. Mm. And where the real power lies is in the Hill. And that's where all these machinations and these great calculations are being made. And that's where the State Department resides. And that's where the Americans pull the strings. Mm. And that's the America you really have to understand. Not the king's speeches to the people, but actually the interpretation of those, the filter process. Yeah. And that's what makes not just America, but all politics fascinating. Because it's this three-legged stool all the time. The king or queen the Senate, our power base, and the people, the actual population. And sometimes they're aligned in their interest, and sometimes they're not. And it's when they're not that the world gets interesting, fascinating, and a little bit dangerous. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. 
AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.